They're people just like you and me. I feel like a lot of people think of children, maybe even subconsciously, as half-human, or that they aren't whole or complete. That's obviously not true. They are learning and growing into who they are, and we can help guide them, or at least respect their path or journey, or whatever you want to call it, because we all are just trying to figure it out. When you give a child their voice, whether that's through them using physical touch, sign language, or verbal language, you can truly see a child's personality blossom, and from that, who they'll grow up to be. Shortly after man learned how to cultivate grains, he learned how to brew beer. Look in the sky! It's a plane! It's a void! It's a frog! A frog? Not plane or bird or even frog, it's just little old me. Last time we saw Bullwinkle, he had just set the art world on its ear with a series of paintings done in whitewash. I call this one Vanilla Ice Cream Spilled on a White Sheet, number two. What Bullwinkle didn't know was that underneath ten of his paintings were ten old masters recently filched from a Paris art museum by, uh, uh... Let me guess. Picasso J. Flom? No. Deleuze Lasnouk? No. Then it must be Boris Badenov. If you are pulled, you will be trapped. Yeah, we say, hey, you're shut up. The Dynamite Jackson 5. Followed by the brand new out of See what bright colors Big Banana Ink Crayons make. So little bananas, there's lots you can learn about coloring and drawing with Big Banana Ink Crayons at school. <laughs> After all, I should know. <laughs> I am the Big Banana. <laughs> Oh, I have ice stone in old desert. Yeah, no. Oh, you find out. I'll walk into the house, uh, right up to Betty, and I'll say, Betty, that Flintstone made me quit my job today. And Rod Ho and his extraordinary Australian emu. And sets lights and all sorts of fun things. Set yourself down. It's time to turn it on. Get up on your feet and razzle-dazzle. Just 
I understand, Doctor, you've had 11 cases so far. But all nine who died were workers at nuclear disposal area, too. The two astronauts with the same illness never went near that site. It's inconsistent. children's story, as told by our very own, Chad Andre. Once, oh so long ago, our great-grandfathers could scarcely have heard it mentioned. There lived within the great forest of Pinehurst a wood nymph named Waffles. Some of it existed in all human beings, just as it existed in trees and animals. To realize and make living to himself the fact it was all one was his sole aim and object. Don't be frightened, said I. It was a figure rather like you. Lord, sir? The rocket coughed a third time and began. He spoke with a very slow, distinct voice, as if he was dictating his memoirs, and always looked over the shoulder of the person to whom he was talking. In fact, he had an almost distinguished manner. 
And if I had known, the bride's father, the rich Reuben Klotner, had just said, that it would take the last gilded in my pocket, then out it would have come. Hear me then, daughter of Reuben Klotner, he began after a pause. You have a twofold sin upon your soul, which is so great, so criminal, that it can only be forgiven by severe punishment. Who was the wood nymph named Waffles? I asked. Is it known what she did while the owl hooted? In brief then, Reuben Klattner believed that, by lying naked, as he put it, to the force which controls the passage of the stars, the breaking of a wave, the budding of a tree, he had succeeded in a way hitherto undreamed of in possessing himself of the essential principle of life. He stretched himself at length on the dry grass. They felt they could not be afraid of him any more than of their particular friend, Old Hobden the Hedger. He did not bother them with grown-up questions or laugh at the donkey's head, but lay and smiled to himself in the most sensible way. "'Have you a knife on you?' he said at last. "'Then came the news of Miss Veal's having died the day before at noon,' says Miss Bargrave. I am sure she was with me on Saturday almost two hours. And in comes Captain Watson and says Miss Veal was certainly dead. And next we have the silly attempts made to discredit the history. Then a little frog with bright jeweled eyes and a green modded coat swam up to him. Ah, a new arrival I see, said the frog. Well, after all, there's nothing like mud. Give me rainy weather in a ditch, and I am quite happy. Do you think it will be a wet afternoon? I am sure I hope so, but the sky is quite blue and cloudless. What a pity! The man, who wore a rough, dark dress, stepped back to his former place at the mouth of the tunnel. Coming around the curve of the tunnel, sir, he said, I saw him at the end, like as if I saw him down a perspective glass. There was no time to check speed, and I knew him to be very careful. As he didn't seem to take heed of the whistle, I shut it off when we were running down upon him, and called to him as loud as I could call. What did you say? I said, below there! Look out! Look out! For God's sake, clear the way! I started. Ah! It was a dreadful time, sir. I never left off calling to him. I put this arm before my eyes not to see, and I waved this arm to the last. But it was no use. How unfortunate it is for Reuben Klattner's daughter, said the rocket, and he tried to look very dignified. Good heavens, cried the goose. It is going to rain sticks. And she rushed into the water. I knew I should have created a great sensation gaps the rocket, and he went out. And now, here is Mars with Brat. Yes. <laughs>
right, hey there. So out of all of the things you could be doing today, you chose to listen to Radio Flom. How cool is that? Thanks a lot. Eat your greens. There you go. (laughs) I've never considered myself to be someone who's particularly maternal. Um, Never really had a desire to have my own kids, but... I worked with kids in two different countries and, you know, sometimes hanging out with kids and having them rely on you for a lot of things can make you feel really protective for them. It's also a chance to kind of look back at, you know, the things that maybe you lacked in your childhood or things that you wish you would have had. And it's a chance to do better for those kids. I see a lot of myself and the kids that I work with and Sometimes I just want to hold them tight and protect them and try and give them the things that I wish I would have had or to, you know, tell them the things that I wish I would have heard as a kid. And I think that's something that maybe we all need to be a little bit better about is to be a little bit more gentle with kids and to, you know, put ourselves in their shoes to remember what it was like, to remember times that you felt scared when you didn't understand things or times that, you know, you needed to be held or you needed to be comforted or how those little things like losing a toy or having, you know, even just a small argument with a friend felt like such a big deal in the world. And I feel like working with kids, you're constantly checking that behavior in yourself and remembering, you know, trying to remember that, you know, like to kids, it does, it feels like the end of the world. It feels like a big deal. Um, And I think kids just feel a lot and they don't have the vocabulary to deal with their feelings. Shit, even adults don't have the vocabulary or the ability to process their feelings. And I think we should try and work harder to teach kids to be able to give names to those feelings, to know that it's okay to feel those things and to give them the tools to cope with them and to deal with them. And I think if we did, we'd have a lot more adults who could handle, you know, dealing with the hard stuff and being able to give it names. So I think even if you don't like kids, there's a lot that you can learn from them. And even if you don't like kids, remember what it was like when you were little and try to be kinder to kids because if even if you think of them as just being a smaller version of you. Hi, so uh, here's the thing. Kids are great. Like, kids are just stupid amounts of great, especially playing Dungeons & Dragons. And, like, I have a lot of experience with this. In fact, I play D&D professionally with kids through, like, summer camps and, like, working at game stores and stuff. All of the campaigns I have ever DM'd have been entirely for children and, like, large ranges of children. Like, I had a table once with, like, five 16-year-old boys and one 9-year-old, and you know what? I think that might have been my favorite table, to be honest. But here's the thing. Kids have made me such a better DM, and I'm really thankful for it. Like, it's really hard to just, like take a group of kids and teach them every single stupid rule that has ever existed in that game. And so I don't, you know, it's made me really think hard about like what things we're paying attention to. How can I streamline this adventure? So that way the kids don't get bored. 
and then I don't get bored as a DM. It's really fun. And kids come up with some, like, really weird and sometimes awful and sometimes really wonderful solutions to problems. And I'll try to write, like, maybe four or five different ways that I could think of that they could solve it. And they'll still find some other way to solve the problems I put in front of them. And then I'm just scrambling. And it's really fun. And they just have, they have no, they have no inhibitions when it comes to role-playing and really being in character. And they're so invested in their characters. Like, kids will jump up from the table and start, like, posing like they're wizards or, or sometimes beating other kids like they're barbarians. But you know what? We deal with that when we deal with that. But it's all really fun. I had a kid once who decided that he wanted to be a ranchomancer. And you might ask yourself, what is a ranchomancer? Which is exactly what I asked him. Uh, and we decided that it was a necromancer that instead of dealing with dead things, he deals with ranch dressing. So I basically just made him a wizard, but I gave him the cantrip Create Ranch, which was exactly like Create Water. And all of his magic would show up as ranch dressing. So eventually when he got like spectral weapon, it showed up as a giant sword made out of ranch dressing. And it was so much fun. Except for the parts where he had to realize how weak low-level magic users are. But you know what? We all have to learn that lesson sometimes. And I was glad I was there to teach it to him. Every kid died in that campaign. It was great. I think that a lot of people tend to write off kids at the table because they think it's gonna... It's gonna, like, stop everyone's creativity or... It's going to slow down the game, and I've found the exact opposite to be true. Kids make the game so much faster, so much more give and take than adult games. And I've played lots of adult games. The only real difference is that, you know, you probably shouldn't swear at the table. It depends on whose kid and what capacity you're in. Uh, I don't get to swear at the table, and I do just fine. And I think it's also a really good vessel for kids to explore some things around them, you know, like, and for all of us to explore themes around us, like, we learn by playing. Like, this is just science here. Like, ever since we are kids, we are trying things out, and we are playing with the objects around us in order to explore the world around us. That's why kids like to play house. That's why kids like to play doctor. They are experiencing these things in the outside world, and then trying to bring it back into something they can understand. And for kids these days, there's a lot of violence. And there's a lot of there's a lot of control in their lives. And they don't always really get that opportunity to explore the world around them in a way that is beneficial to them. But the open-ended world of Dungeons and Dragons or any other role-playing game gives them a great vessel. And it's kind of a little inspiring to watch sometimes as kids are kids are trying things out. I've seen kids try out different gender identities on a character first before really feeling attached to it themselves. I've, I've actually seen kids try to like make up in game before making up as humans outside of the game and that was particularly sweet. Um, that was actually with the Ranchomancer kid and uh, Bilbo Baggins the Barbarian. He picked that one all, all by himself. I'm so proud. What I'm really saying here, though, is give kids a chance at your table. They're great players. Like, yeah, sure, you're going to have to tell them which die to roll every single time. 
and that takes a little bit of patience, but also they're going to pick it up. They're going to learn it. And sometimes it will take a little longer, but they're really fun. And kids just want to play. We just want to play. So why don't we play together? And I know that's super cheesy, but also just play with your kids, damn it. Play with all the kids. Kids are great. You are listening to Radio Flop. Almost modern, beyond modern. Right foot, you put your right foot in, you put your right foot out, you put your right foot in, and you shake it all about. You do the hokey pokey and you turn yourself around. That's what it's all about. The hokey pokey. If you are lost and need guidance, we have just the thing for you. The Hokey Pokey. The directions are simple, and you find out everything. What else can do that? Once again. Steve Mayallo talks to Ruby Rock. I looked at a few of your interviews. I love the local news people asking me when you kids. <laughs> <laughs> they were trying to get me on anything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Tell me about Bad Day. So Bad Day is my newest book. And it is about a little boy, and you were dropped in the middle of his meltdown. He's having very overwhelming feelings. And you watch him as he explodes and then pauses and reflects and discovers the power of turning inward. And so this book is about, um, about processing your inner life. And I think it's great for introverts and extroverts and kids with anxiety and sensitivities and anger and anybody who falls in between all of those things. This stuff is so important for us as humans right now. Are there any other books like that on the market? There are plenty feelings books out there. I think where mine differs is in its honesty and its relatability uh, Henny, the main character, his tantrum goes on for a very long time. And I illustrated what those overwhelming feelings feel like and look like. And what I often found in the, the books that I looked at that were already on the market is that they often sanitize overwhelming feelings and kind of play nice-nice around bad feelings, and that feels condescending to me when it comes to kids not really acknowledging that they feel the same the same overwhelm that adults do, and I think adults forget that. One thing I like about your approach, because I remember being a kid and wanting the, the world to make more sense and people to stop lying to me about things just because I wasn't ready for it. Absolutely. We, in Western culture have a concept of childhood that isn't necessarily shared with other cultures around the world. And we think that childhood is a time of purity and frailty and complete dependence on adults. But I think we're actually discrediting children and what they're capable of physically, psychologically, and spiritually. Um, In other cultures, 
kids are expected at a very young age to look after their brothers and sisters to help at the marketplace. Sometimes they're weaving intricate embroidery and cutting open coconuts with machetes. They are trusted at a far younger age. And, you know, here in America, we're impressed if a child can tie her shoes. So my approach in my books is, and, and in the classroom when I was teaching, was speaking to kids as, as if they were peers. And what I found was that they pay far greater attention when you speak frankly to them. I'm finding the more you talk to people and you're real about stuff, and not, not just with children, adults too, we're craving that. We're craving real people again. I hope so. I, it seems like there's been kind of a backlash in social media against the curated personality. And of course, there's still plenty of that. But I've watched a lot of people who used to have these very, very curated, designy, design-oriented color palette, you know, controlled feeds now putting out stories and posts about their mental health breakdowns and, and their journeys. And I think we've all gotten sick of flipping through fake curated, sanitized stuff that doesn't really reflect reality. I'm following a lot of people who are real on Instagram, or at least they're such good curators that they're real with who they are. Mm -hmm. But mental illness is the big thing. I don't think we could handle the world we're in. And that's why I think your book is so important. Yeah. I think it's important to remember that we are functioning with the same nervous systems that we had 50,000 years ago. Um, but we're in a brand new world that is still ever changing so quickly and trying to fit ourselves into it. And I think that we don't. I think we're, we're so far away from natural human behavior and community and food and water that we're just becoming kind of monstrosities and it's making us physically and mentally ill. What would you say about the whole situation with, uh, like, I'm a teacher, I know I could be shot for just going to school. Because as our, our training was, uh, teachers are the first ones shot. And uh, I'm still in there. And I actually had, there was a gunman running around outside my classroom at one point, and the whole emergency failed. They actually sent out texts to everyone with the blank area on it to be filled in. Mm -hmm. And luckily, it was just a kid with a gun, but he was spotted and was out there, and the cops eventually grabbed him. But I had no idea he was right outside my classroom. Wow. I don't have an opinion specifically on guns, but I do see the violence in schools and the, the mental health breakdown in schools as part of a larger problem that has to do with a vicious cycle between how we're living as humans and the pharmaceutical industry and guns that are available and all kinds of things um, that, that factor in. So I just see it as a symptom of a larger set of interconnected issues that we actually have a lot of control over. And it doesn't always come down to, you know, begging for legislative change. How will bad day benefit parents? I want parents to have this book because I see a lot of parents trying just to avoid 
their children's landmines and also saying things to their kids like use your words, use your words. And they're trying to navigate overwhelming feelings without any tools or process. And for kids, they might not have the words yet because they're missing the step where they pause and reflect and think about their feelings and think about where they're coming from and what happened to them during the day. So there's wisdom to me in the meltdowns and the tantrums. And it's uh, about getting to know ourselves and our own needs and also realizing that we are ultimately responsible for our own behavior and that our behavior affects the outside world. So we have a place we learn our place as an individual um, within ourselves and as part of a global community. So where can everyone get your book? You can find me at rubyroth.co and from there explore several different parts of the website, whether it's the kids specific stuff or my personal artwork. Um, you can find the books uh, wherever books are sold, or you can get signed copies through my website. And of course you can find Ruby on our blog every couple of weeks or so there's a post radio vlog because we said so it smells like paint um yeah i was just i couldn't think of like anything for myself so i looked out in the crowd and started drawing people well i, st I went to school for art history and i currently do hair Flamis, you don't know? No, what is the that? Podcaster on. Hey, how you doing? Come on over. Is that over. the podcast name? Hey, how you doing? Hey. So, uh, podcast talking to people. Oh, okay. So, what are you doing? Are you performing? Uh, no, just just hanging out, just checking it out. I uh, heard about this like earlier this week, so I just came okay. out. Okay. So, state who you are, because it will oh, be. Oh, I am uh, Brian. I am the one-man band of this earth on Instagram, and uh, Brian's photography. You're one of the yeah. first people that actually uses our hashtags. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, why don't, then so why don't more flawless know about me, then? Um, they should. They should. Okay, drunk guy, you're still drunk or you're not? Are you heated? Can you drive? Yes. Modelo's a great beer. It's nice and cheap. Um, some people think that the price is going to raise because of, because of the tariffs on Mexico. <laughs> what do you think about that? Carling Black Label was my go-to cheap beer. Carl, I'm not even familiar with that. Uh, I don't think it's on the market anymore. Oh. My name is Avocado Dot Fingers. All you have to do is not give a shit about what other people think. Because if you do what's true to yourself and you're honest and kind, then the world becomes your playground. Because you get to let go of all that bullshit and you just go forward with the truth. Fuck that shit! Pops Blue Ribbon! Please, please. Please, please. Radio 1.
Sacramento at the Cider Sessions. This song right here is called Microphone Commander, Wizard in the Hat. Here we go. So known as Luna Land, the rocket ship is always ready for the love, love. Sway my net up, it's from this side, so I duck this love. To the left and to the right. Reverberation and the delay creation. Coming straight from my space station to the nation. I wait up in money and come and slit this youth. So someone I said in a bush and every month I said, I know what you're done. Everywhere you go, they got a picture of your face. Everywhere you go inside this human race, they got I locked up in a penitentiary. They got I locked up with social security. Money men are come and take your position away. No matter what you do, I say, no matter what you say, the sun will come up eventually and dry up all your worries potentially. The sun will come up, wipe that look off of your face. Microphone commander of the What? Microphone commander of the Who? Who? Microphone commander of the Oh, yeah! Microphone commander of the Yes, they push the magic The love around here is massive The hatred, yes, you cannot mask this I don't want no situation with inflation I want to be free in this so-called free nation I want to be free from this bureaucracy What did they done to my vibrancy? All they want to do is separate us They love to hate us all me want to do is a jacket. Love is the greatest. Side sessions in Sacramento.
here. Okay, just just read on here. Why? Because th- this is going to go in the podcast. Why? <laughs> just because it's different people saying it. So just read right here. You're listening to Radio Flom. But I'm hungry. Okay. Well, read this and we'll get something afterwards. This right here? Mm-hmm. How do you spell this? <laughs> it's Radio Flom. Ra- radio? Radio? What's a radio? It's like an iPod, but old. Ew. Yeah, but they're cool, too, because they have static and personality. What's a flom? Uh, that's a big question. Uh, don't worry about that part. Just read, you're listening to Radio Flom. You're listening to Radio Flom. Yes, perfect. Okay, let's go get you food. Yes. Hi, I'm Rita Moreno. In 1971, I became part of an amazing challenge made by the U.S. Department of Education to the creators of Sesame Street. Could they teach kids to read with a television show? Rita Moreno. Clips from the best of the electric company. 1971 to 1978. Ever. Using comedy, music, and animation, the electric company made reading fun and cool. I was part of this extraordinary effort along with an incredible cast. Morgan Freeman, Bill Cosby, Irene Cara, to name a few. Who is it? It's the plumber. I've come to fix the sink. It's the plumber. I've come to fix the sink. I am cute. Oh, that's nice. Someone thinks I'm cute. Uh, how about very? Ah, oh, I am cute, very. Who's the dummy writing this show? Broccoli! How we hate you, Broccoli! Purple Pirates and Evil McWeevil, the leader of the pack. And snore, and sniff, and sneeze. The Adventures of Letterman. Singing in the train. A cup of coffee and a sweet roll? We are out of sweet rolls. A glass of milk and a sweet roll. We are out of sweet rolls. Iced tea and a sweet roll. We are out of sweet rolls. Orange juice and a sweet roll. We are out of sweet rolls. Okay, then I'll just have a sweet roll. Arm charm. How did you learn to read? Um, my mommy and daddy used to read to me all the time, and um, I learned the words that were supposed to be on page, 
and I memorized them, and um, and that ended up being how I learned to read. What about the children? TV's scariest logos ever, compiled by Matt Liga, YouTube, 2007. of the United States. Most sneaked into the country looking for work, and they're afraid if they fill out a census form, they'll get caught and be sent back to their own country. But the government promises that all census forms will be absolutely secret. It says no one should be afraid to fill them out. So look for your family's census form around March 28th and make sure it gets filled out. I'm Christopher Glenn with the 1980 census in the news. because there were people who wanted to hurt us. I'm hungry here at Clint all the time. I'm so hungry that I've woken up in the middle of the night with hunger. I'm too scared to ask the officials for any more food. Hear the words of detained migrant children. New York Times, July 2019. There isn't water or soap to wash our hands after we use the bathroom. We have to ask for toilet paper if we want any. I am five years old. I am from Honduras. I, I am seven, seven years, years old. old. I am from, I am from El, El Salvador. Salvador. Agents separated me from my dad. I have not seen my father again. There is no room to move without stepping over the others. We were not given a mat to sleep on, so we had to sleep on the cold concrete floor. The lights are on all the time. We cannot sleep 
because every 15 to 20 minutes, the guards are yelling something. Get up! During the two weeks we've been here, they have let us outside about five times for 20 minutes. It's so ugly to be locked up all the time. There are no activities, only crying. Just remember, we are treating them and doing a much better job than the Obama administration. U.S. Concentration Camps for Kids, an update. Jeannie Mayallo, October 2019. All of the news regarding concentration camps for kids was from earlier this year, but it's no longer on the front page. Most of the major news coverage ended in August of 2019. Immigrant children and families are still in detention, and here are some of the updates that have trickled in. Detained, how the U.S. built the world's largest immigrant detention system. The United States' reliance on immigration detention is not a new phenomenon, nor did it emerge with Donald Trump, though its growth under his administration is staggering. Over the last four decades, a series of emergency stopgaps and bipartisan deals has created a new multi-billion dollar industry built on the incarceration of immigrants. The people held in these prison-like facilities across the country are not serving time for any crimes. They're waiting for a hearing to determine whether they can legally remain in the country while being kept in what is considered civil detention, intended to ensure that people show up for these hearings. Detention, once reserved only for those who threaten public safety or pose a flight risk, is now ubiquitous. Immigrants, including asylum seekers and legal migrants, wait an average of more than four weeks to be released, though some have been held inside for years or even decades. Up to 2,500 are children and parents fleeing war and violence in their home countries. Thousands have alleged sexual and physical abuse inside these facilities. This was an investigative report by The Guardian, September 24, 2019. The Trump administration had unveiled new rules that would allow officials to detain migrant families indefinitely, but this was blocked by a U.S. District Court judge on September 27, 2019, from Al Jazeera. At the southwestern border, dozens of U.S. lawmakers see a broken system and have come away with very little consensus about what needs to be done. From the New York Times, September 28th. The U.S. Department of Homeland Security said it plans to collect DNA from hundreds of thousands of detained immigrants in federal detention facilities. New York Times, October 2nd. How the Trump administration is privatizing the detention of migrant children from Time Magazine October 3rd and updated October 9th. A New Jersey county faces mounting pressure to stop housing detained immigrants in its jail. New York Times, October 12th. A British family says one wrong turn led to an ICE detention nightmare. Two couples and three young children were in custody for 11 nights after crossing the Canada-U.S. border, which they say was an unintended consequence of swerving to avoid hitting an animal. New York Times, October 16th. Mexicans are increasingly the face of asylum in the United States, replacing Central Americans who dominated last year's caravan and a surge of families that brought border arrests to a 13-year high in May. Associated Press, October 18th. Secret and unaccountable. 
For more than a decade, ICE has been taking a small number of immigrant teenagers it deems to be dangerous far from their families and detaining them for months at a time. The places these youths are held don't appear on ICE's online map of detention centers. The agency does not make its report about the conditions of the facilities available like it does for the others. And family members cannot find their loved ones using the federal government's official detainee locator since it only provides information on adults. From CNN, October 25th. A tally of children split at the border now tops 5,400 in a new count. From the Associated Press, October 24th. Immigrant advocates and lawyers in New Mexico say multiple asylum seekers from Cuba tried to kill themselves and staged sit-ins after being detained by U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement. U.S. News and World Report, October 25th. ICE detention centers may have allowed surveillance footage to be deleted after a detainee's death, lawyers say. This footage could help determine what happened to Roxana Hernandez, a transgender asylum seeker from Honduras who died weeks after surrendering at a port of entry to the United States. A private autopsy also found evidence that Hernandez was physically abused, an allegation at odds with the government findings. From the Washington Post, October 25th. Whether we call them concentration camps or detention centers, the lack of justice for those seeking refuge must end. This was an opinion piece in the USA Today, October 25th. The Institute of Contemporary Art in Boston says its latest exhibit titled When Home Won't Let You Stay, Migration Through Contemporary Art explores global migration and displacement. That was from the Associated Press, October 27th. And lastly, the West Texas Sierra Blanca Detention Facility, which houses ICE detainees, is under a water conservation protocol and shuts down its its water supply at 11 p.m. daily to allow its on-site water tanks to replenish overnight. A facility supervisor would not comment on the current number of detainees and referred all other questions to their management. Texas Tribune, October 27th. This is Radio Flom. The best minds of our time are telling us that you and I are living a time unlike any other time in the recorded history, in the 5,000-year recorded history of humankind. They say that never have so many challenges been focused into such a narrow window of time. Trying to slow the scale of bitch, I do it by the ounce Move a smarter now, so I can't run up my amounts Foreign designer brands, I can barely pronounce Heard you talking about leaving your man like now's my time to pounce I'ma shoot you through my clothes, watch your bitch as decompose Do not fuck with dirty hoes, at the club we have to close Snuck it in, nobody knows, I'm sipping till I'm fucking doze Hit it from the back and film a fucking movie Got the cushy in the air to let you know I'm groovy Bust the fish down, then I slide it in the coochie Wanna write a love letter, but she too bougie Giving me sloppy in the back of a movie Got my money longer than her extensions I cannot keep the bitch out my mentions The shit she do got me different dimensions
crises until we answer the most fundamental question of all. That question is also the most ancient. Who are we? Who are we? Already done this and I already done that. Pulling trap car, magic rabbit out of hat, blood pumping, eyes wide. Admit your situation, risk the consequence of pride. Verify your identity before the team slide. Mandatory thugging street sweeper in my ride. Activating bloodthirst, predator recon. Not a video game, no load up, respawn. I've been robbing hella lames like you should've shot me. Disrespectful Guna can't nobody stop me. If you need the pack, Lil Wody got it on me. On me. Gooning. I still got no cheddar Healing These fucks doing no better Wishing you was like me I'ma go get her Get her Get her This was High Class Click with Novus Ordo Seclorum, off the brand new Ruby Encrusted Tomb 4 My Shooters EP. You can find High Class Click at SoundCloud slash Coke White Cadillac. You're not offering medical advice. Uh, you're doing something here called graphic medicine, although it's narrative nonfiction. Let's talk about how mom died. Radio Flom talks to Steve Wishman, author of How Mom Died, a graphic memoir. I take it you're reading the about page there on the website. Of course um, I am. I, although it was trying to make, it was making me sound good. <laughs> well, what's interesting, as of just two days ago, um, I realized that that's kind of out of date. I need to revise what I've written there because in doing a guest blog post for the graphic medicine website, I finally came to terms with the fact that this is a story about caregiver guilt. And my about page is kind of all over the place. You know, if you read it, it's like, this is about taking care of my mother in the last few years of her life. It's about the ins and outs of the healthcare system and uh, especially the healthcare financial aid system like Medicaid or Medi-Cal in California, what a labyrinth that was. It's about um, family problems, you know, when you grow up as a second generation Korean American kid and the expectations that are put on top of you by the tiger mom kind of personality and, you know, and how that compounds with all the healthcare issues and dementia kind of mindset. So it sounds like I'm trying to solve a lot of problems, you know, with one story. And then that led to me feeling kind of unconfident. Like I didn't feel like I was an expert when it came to healthcare or insurances or Korean culture. So like it was making it hard for me to talk about it. But once I realized that all of these are just facets of a story about caregiver guilt, then it became a lot easier because that's that's one thing I'm exceptionally uh, an expert at is how I felt. You know, no one else has, no one else carries that torch, right? So it's a lot easier when I frame it under the overarching topic of guilt. You know, okay, so this thing has brought, people have asked me if this is a cathartic kind of project for me. And I used to say no, because I thought I'd made peace with all of these things. And I'm like, I'm just sharing my experience to help other people. But some things started happening, you know, like as I'm drawing it, I started having these panic attacks. Um, and I haven't had panic attacks in a while. You know, they, I had a, a phase with that and they subsided. But um, it wasn't really about 
you know, my mother or guilt. It was more about like, how am I going to be perceived for my actions? You know, that I'm drawing here. I'm, I'm witnessing myself making all of the hard decisions again from the audience's perspective by drawing myself like this. And so like, I have to be comfortable with what I'm doing in these panels too. And I started to realize like, wow, I'm carrying a lot of guilt still that I didn't know was still in there. Like I'm afraid to relive these scenes. So I, I looked up caregiver support groups because I have this fight club like fantasy that I, I'll get hard people <laughs> cry and eat, you know, free cookies. Um, uh, did you guys punch each other? No, no. So I, I show up at this group that's just around the corner from my house. And it was like a very convenient timing, very convenient location. It's free. They were really supportive in a lot of the ways that you're looking for. It was a, it's specifically a dementia support group. Like one of the things I asked was like, how do you guys deal with sort of the lingering guilt around having to tell these little lies? Telling my mom, like, you can't go back home because this room isn't ready and you need to like spend X number of hours in this place to qualify for this. So you don't have to pay for an ambulance ride. Like all this feels like kind of manipulation. Yeah. But you're doing it in the best interest of that person. And when I brought this up, they were like, oh, do, do, do. you, you just brought up a bad word. We don't use the word guilt in this group. I'm like, great. So how do we talk about it? not going to talk about it? <laughs> they're acknowledging that it's, it's not, uh, it's not realistic because they're saying it's not, you didn't put your loved one in that position. It's the illness that put both of you in that position. Right. I, I like that. But by just saying we don't use that word here, it's like sweeping it under the, the rug. And that, and again, and I, that's when I realized like, shit, that's what this entire comic is about is putting all that on display. So people can see all those decisions kind of be along with me for the ride and realize exactly how sinister and, twisted it is you know that you can put yourself in these mental situations despite everyone telling you you're doing the right thing there's this whole movement now called the death positive thing the death positive movement but <laughs> and it's weird if you look at instagram posts around it some of it's very positive and it's about you know getting people to talk about death openly so that you're not completely caught off guard when things happen to you at the end and it's not so taboo you know you've actually yeah. spoken in plain terms and made plans and made peace with things um but some people take it in a different direction and you'll see girls just like all gothed out, like taking their sexy death positive. Picture. I'm like, okay, whatever. I, I got I to remember, man, that you're in Portland. Yeah. So, but th- so this is actually the reason why the title, how mom died is as blunt as it is. Mm-hmm. What I kept thinking of was when I was going through this stuff, I kept looking for moments of, um, uh, of relief, you know, escape. So I would go to comic book stores and look on the graphic novel shelves. And I've just like lost my taste for superheroes, for the caped crusaders. It's like the, the superhero fatigue has set in really badly for me. But at the same time, I think it's not just Hollywood. I think it's that going through something as real as what I was going through with my mom. Bullshit didn't matter anymore. Like now I'm really focused on these kind of stories. And so that's what I would look for on graphic novel shelves is real stories about people going through some challenging times, families or whatever. And it's hard to find because people are very ambiguous about their titles. You know, it's a, a story about dementia might be called shadows or something. And my wife and I were like, let's just call it how mom died because that is blunt and it's honest and it treats a serious topic with the respect it deserves. And we've been talking about this a lot lately because I'm in a position where I'm taking care of my 89-year-old mother. And of course, my situation is a lot different than yours, but yours is actually helping me get through. And my mother's had three accidents and the DMV has decided that she is capable of driving. My family is very long-lived, so 89 for her is more like 70, Mm -hmm. 75 for other people. You're describing the kind of gray area there that we're very familiar with like for instance saying that the dmv has decided that she's okay to drive i mean by what criteria 
like one of the things yeah. that my mother had problems with, you know, like you said, there's a little dilation when it comes to the perception of age. And with my mom, she was fairly yeah. young, all things considered. Like one thing you always hear when dealing with an aging parent is people say, oh, they're so young, you know, and it, it, up until they're 90 yeah. or so, I think that's where the breaking point is, where they're no longer considered young. <laughs> but my mom was like 70 when she first started falling ill. And, you know, these are like mental health issues. It was actually uh, cirrhosis of the liver, cryptogenic cirrhosis, which is code for, we don't know how it started, but, you know, she never drank. She just has the liver of a 80 year old alcoholic in a seven year old body. So from an outward perspective, you know, she might not have seemed like, like she was ambulatory. She could walk a certain number of feet. She could, you know, raise her leg for a certain number of seconds. And so occupational therapists who would come to the house would say, oh, she's fine. She can totally live alone. But it's like you haven't been here. You haven't seen yeah. the the nuance of, of how she can endanger herself by doing crazy things like bringing the barbecue inside the house to boil water you know and it's like that kind of gray area you know the people just inspect your loved one for a few minutes and rule them capable of things and then they leave you holding the bag yeah then you find yourself trying to make the case for how they're not safe and how they need help and then that guilt starts setting in you know it's like what am i campaigning for here i'm looking at this i'm making my own little comparisons here and uh you had people listening to you my mother has convinced everyone that i'm crazy which is easy to do because i'm an artist and i've always been an artist no one wants to talk to me and That's so interesting yeah and that feels very backwards to me but. well they're they're kind of older so I, I have my aunt who i ran into is just glaring at me and it turns out she's mad at me for some lie my mom made up and my mom believes the lie so she threw it in my face and i was like i i never did that have you ever have you ever noticed the the weird things that people say at, at funerals uh me yeah a weird tradition uh here's the weird thing for me because i talk in front of people i get asked mm -hmm. to do eulogies and um they're hard to do because I want to go up there and celebrate life and do something really fucking funny. And um, no one wants that. They, they have their own perceived notion of what should yeah. be done and said at a funeral. And yeah. uh, I even uh, I told my wife, if she lives past me and I die, I want you to just do something really crazy. I think Jim Henson's funeral apparently was really, it was in his will that he wanted a huge party. Oh. So uh, I'm just like, do something nuts. Uh, take my body and animate it. Have it sit up halfway through. <laughs> it's like, this is amazing. Somebody, yeah. <laughs> somebody, somebody recently said that um, the fact that we put pillows in caskets <laughs> says that we know, we know absolutely nothing about death. We still don't quite understand it. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, they have the, those – the stuff that people come equipped with, like what they think that a funeral should be about. Yeah. I don't know. There's a lot to that. There's a strip I have that comes up later where I have to attend a funeral and it's not my mom's. Mm. And uh, there was, I had an expectation that, that funerals were about the dying party. Ah, but not. it's not, yeah. it's about the people and them trying to make peace with the fact that they now have seen death and are afraid yeah. and they have to sort of like, commiserate about it and, and lean on each other. Um, the, the kind of stuff that people decided to speak about, like mortified me a little bit. Cause I thought it was disrespectful. Mm. Um, in some cases it felt like people just like, they were an opportunist looking for a platform so they can spew a bunch of stuff. And maybe that is the right place for it. I don't know, but uh, we're so, 
we're just so really weird about death. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I have a hard time saying this, but it seems to be the human thing. If you say someone died recently, where suddenly the word condolence has come up. <laughs> and uh, I can't say it because, number one, I still don't know what it is. Uh, <laughs> I heard it a lot when my dad died. And I was just like, I guess you're supposed to do that. I really loved our myth episode of the podcast. Mm. Blue and Lewis really jumped into uh, myth and how we're trying to explain death. Did you ever, do you know the name Tom Bruce? He was a teacher from Sacramento City College. Tom Bruce is a teacher I never actually got to, uh, I I never got to take any of his classes, but everybody talked about him. My wife took his class, old girlfriends of mine had attended, and his class was called Death and Dying. And it was hugely popular at Sac City because of uh, what you're just describing. You know, he was getting into the mechanics of it and the cultural stigma and how like so much of what we do engage in in life is us just trying to not think about it. I do believe that the majority of uh, pursuits that we take on and uh, small talk we engage in, it's all just to distract ourselves from this inevitable thing that's looming, this mortality. It's, you know, it's big and it's, it's terrifying to people. Um, What you were saying about condolences, it's like thoughts and prayers is the new trendy thing to say, right? Well, well, that's tied to people getting shot. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's all it's all small talk it's it's like the it's like yeah. the funeral version of working hard or hardly working you know or living the dream these are just like these little yeah. portmanteau phrases that we say to avoid actually getting deep with people and i've i lost my patience yeah. with that a long time ago um if you know if we don't have anything genuine to talk about i get bored really quickly my wife and i were just talking about board games this morning i know this is sacrilege for some people but I, I really don't like playing board games or any of those kind of like party games. Um, I used to think it was because I was uh, conflict adverse, but I think that it, it, <laughs> it has more to do with the fact that I'm just not having a meaningful interaction with people yet. And it's supposed to be an icebreaker, yeah. but I don't feel like I've broken the ice at the end of playing a round of cards against humanity. I just feel awkward <laughs> and slightly ashamed. Yeah. <laughs> There's this, so in the story, there's like guilt that comes from my mom from just this Korean kind of upbringing. Uh, and then there's the guilt of the person that has to put their loved one in a nursing home and, and just all the baggage that comes with that. Uh, but yeah, then there's this other guilt that's like put on you by other people in your family or neighbors in my case. And a lot of times it wasn't, it's not even intended to be that way. It's just they're projecting something, yeah. right? So. Like, for instance, one of my mom's next door neighbor had this thing where she would uh, every time she would come over to check on us, the, the, the conversation ended with her saying, well, it's really good that I have my sister to watch after my mom. Because, you know, as soon as they go into a nursing home, their health goes downhill real fast. I'm like, why would you tell me that <sighs> every time you tell me that and you know what I'm going through? And I still think about it. That is now embedded in here. Uh, I have it as a post-it note on the walls here as, as a comic that I need to cross off the list at some point. Um, and then, you know, at the funeral, even there was some of that built in there where, um, my mom was not a fan of cats, but she had this ornamental cat thing made out of seashells. I have no idea where it came from. I pulled together a bunch of crap to put, you know, uh, as a, as an altar there at at the funeral home. And and of course, one of the neighbors chimes in, you know, your mom didn't like cats. Why the fuck would you say that to me right now? Like I'm doing my best. And so, yeah, like I'm still stuck with it. Oh, as a designer, you will love Hmm. this. They ask for a bunch of photos and they say, for this part of the package, we're going to make a slideshow, you know, and 
you're so emotionally fraught. You don't need to deal with any design work at this time. So hand over everything to them. Fine. Do what you got to do. And then the little bullshit curtain uh, opens. Everything feels cheap. You feel like, God, I didn't even do this funeral right. This doesn't feel like uh, serious enough for some reason. Just this dinky curtain made me feel that yeah. way. And there's this like elongated flat screen back there and it starts up the slideshow and it's fully stretched. It's like a four <laughs> by three picture. That's <laughs> by and my, my designer blood is boiling. I'm like, you God, I can't even get this right. This is, but it, you know, it, under, it underscores how even at times like that, life is not going to be the serious uh, thing that you expect, I guess, right? right? The universe if that happens at my funeral, I want to sit up and, and just, they, they can animate me critiquing. I used to joke, my, my friend in high school and I used to joke that if we, and it was just stupid high school kid kind of uh, humor. Like when I die, I want to get shot out of a cannon, like with, without being in a container and then have some off key trombones playing like a funeral dirge as I go end over end into the ocean or something. Um, I don't know. It used to be a joke, but now it's actually kind of uh that's what that's what art is about. Art is about being honest about who you are, and the the best art is the stuff you can relate to, uh, without all the gloss on the it. The whole point of doing a comic strip format for this thing kind of came from a genuine place like that. If you look at the first strip, yeah. it's this meta kind of story about I'm going through this midlife crisis. I have no idea what I'm doing. I just keep going back to earlier hobbies in my life uh probably from a time where i felt safe or something but i think it yeah. really i mean in retrospect it feels like it was a search for more for meaning like we were just talking about uh, having superhero fatigue and stuff it's like what really mattered yeah. to me at these different phases of life and my earliest career goal was to be a syndicated comic strip artist because i loved you know calvin and Hobbes and peanuts and bloom county i called the newspaper when i was like six years old asking how i could get in the paper and they were they were so cute. They were like, "Oh well, this nice guy got on the phone and told me about syndication. <laughs> it was adorable." But I had no stories to tell back then, you know. And so now yeah. I'm like, "What's the right vehicle? What's the platform to tell this story?" I've been a presentation designer for over a decade. You know, I've, I've, visual storytelling is my bag, but what's it going to be? Is it should it be a f- short film? Um, this felt like the natural move. It like it, it works the way my memory works, where. Mm-hmm. everything about that whole experience is these small moments, these little stories that have some irony or something built in. And so those each translate into one comic strip and together they build the gestalt of this bigger story, but I don't have to like obsess about getting that exact thing, right. You know, or getting all the pieces in the right order. Even I can sort of modularly rearrange things. And- are you on a set schedule with these? Or are you just putting them out as you finish? Um, I'm trying to hit Tuesdays and Fridays okay. on my published dates. Um, and I waited until I had about 65 or 70 done before starting mm-hmm. to post. That way I have a back catalog to pull from and I'm not constantly under the eight ball or behind the eight ball. So where could we read it? Um, howmomdied.com is the landing page for all of this stuff. You can go back and start from the beginning. Um, there's it's, uh, it's actually a Tumblr page on the back end too. So you can find it on you know, it, it, it'll be printed on a spine in a bookshelf, hopefully someday. And uh, anyone dealing with parental aging and stuff might be gravitated towards it. Don't eat the flum. And now, Nick Surface talks to Marina Hill about 
night of 1,000 drawings. This is a spectacular one-night event that is supposed to inspire all kinds of people, whether you're an artist, a student, creative, anybody really, to um, either donate a piece of original artwork and or participate and all the artwork that's donated is basically displayed in a one-of-a-kind charitable art sale on a night, in the Night of a Thousand Drawings. And then it's sort of like a party and people come in and they look around and they get to enjoy drinks and appetizers and entertainment. And then they get to take one piece of original art home with them. And the whole point of this uh, really unique and fun event is to raise money for a cause. In, in our case, we raised money for the Boys and Girls Clubs of Sacramento, Greater Sacramento. Uh, what exactly is uh, the Boys and Girls Club? What do they, they do? The Boys and Girls Club is a nonprofit that has been around for a very long time. Their mission is they would like to um, enable young people um, to reach their full potential. And what that means is they offer after-school programs and they offer places for children to go and they are there to help them in different ways. So whether they need a place to go after school, they need some tutoring, they want to go play basketball at night and there's nowhere to go, so they have gyms. So it's basically a great nonprofit program, it tends to focus on children that are underprivileged and maybe don't have you know places that they can be. Uh, it was really great working with them. They're a great organization. They're all over the United States, but we specifically picked the organization here in Sacramento. And they have uh, four locations, I believe, here in Sacramento. And we focused on one particular location, um, trying to do some upgrades to their gym so that the kids that come into that area and use that gym have a really nice place to be and go and play. It's really cool that, you know, any level of artist that can, you know, just create something was able to, to donate to this cause and actually be able to help people because it contributed to the, the event night. But um, what kind of like art did you get? Like, wh what was the range of type of submissions you got? Yeah, you know, that is really interesting. I you know what, we had a lot of fun. We engaged the local uh, Sacramento artist community. So we had, um, we, we call them doodles, but we had doodles of all types. We had doodles from artists that um, work in the community and sell their art here. So they're amazing, really different. And then we also had doodles from, you know, anybody, anybody who just can put pen to paper or pencil to paper and doodle. And also one of my favorites is we went to the Boys and Girls Club and doodled with them during one of their after-school programs. And that was just a lot of fun too. So it really can be anybody who chooses to doodle and anybody who chooses to be a part of this. And I think that's why we really love this idea and why we will continue to do it if we, uh, if we can. I do see that this started back in 2006 and around the world, but what did it take to bring it to Sacramento? That's a great question. We originally started this event in LA and although the event itself, Night of a Thousand Drawings, is in our own concept, we brought it to LA for our LA office because we wanted to get back to our local community 
And after the LA event, it was so successful and people thought, wow, this is really great. Like, how do we do this? How do we get involved? So we wanted to bring it to Sacramento because this is where our business started from. This is our headquarters. And it was another great way for us to give back to our community as well. So it took um, a lot of meetings, a lot of brainstorming to bring it here. But what's really great about the event is it's kind of an open source event, which means if you go online and you see something from an event, for example, the logo, the logo anybody can use. If you plan to do this event and you want to pick a local cause and you want to put all the work and effort in, there's things out there, there's resources out there that you can already use. You don't have to create you know, all of your marketing materials. So that, that was really great. Of course, we, you know, one of the things we wanted to do was really put our own spin on it. We were the first ones to bring it to the United States. And that was a really proud moment for Miyamoto. So although we did take the logo and a few pictures from other types of events and in other countries, we pretty much redesigned a lot of the stuff ourselves because we wanted to kind of give it, you know, more of a, a different look. But we stayed true to the overall concept of the event, which is, you know, really getting the community involved, drawing, creating art, to end up in this one spectacular evening of having the art up for everybody to enjoy and at the end really helping a wonderful local cause. It's really awesome that, you know, it's all about the cause. Like you said, all, all the materials are open source for, for people to do their own thing. You know, it's it's not about just upholding like a brand image that's also helping people. It's, it's really for... The, the, the cause that each of them are focusing on. So for people who want to help or, or might want to try to start their own in a, a different part of the world, how can they go about doing that? Well, I would suggest a couple of things. First of all, we do have a website, nightof1000drawings.com. They can go take a look at our website and we have uploaded pictures from our event that we recently had in September. So that can give them an idea of you know, what it looks like. And uh, one of the things is, you know, just doing a little research. What's great out there is you, we have this whole online community. We can just go out there and ask these questions. I know that one of my coworkers actually was chatting with somebody in Amsterdam who was doing the event or who had done the event. She said, well, how did you display your drawings? And how did you, you know, how did you do this and that? And she was really friendly and shared all the information. So I feel like it's a community and it's community driven and everybody seems really happy to help in some way, but mostly just sharing information. It does take a team to kind of put on an event like this. So, you know, but we had volunteers, people were really excited about it. And so it's definitely doable. So for those who are, are listening to everything about this and, and just really getting sparked and, and, and jazzed about it, what is the, the future for Night of a Thousand Drawings here in uh, America? Oh my gosh, I'm so glad you asked. We're really excited to bring it to LA, back to LA where we started it. And it will be in April, 2020. So people, you know, look out for information on that. We have a whole new cause. One thing that's really great about this is you don't have to stick with one cause. We tend to do causes that really focus on children because we have a passion for helping the youth of today. So usually it's something that centers around that for us. 
but um, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be the same charity every time. So we have, we'll have exciting announcements in the future about which charity we will be partnering with in LA and you know all that good stuff. So thank you for asking. We're pretty excited that it's coming up. That's awesome. I, I'm glad you, you stick to the, the same theme to, to help kids. But uh, why is that important? Why, why does it matter to help kids this day and age? I think it's always important to help our youth because they are the next generation that will be you know, taking over, leading the charge. And unless we instill values into them that we believe in and unless we provide good role models and, and safe places to be, then we're not really giving them a future that we really hope they they will have. So because it's our passion, looking at and trying to make sure that kids are safe really goes back to, for us, our nonprofit, which is Miyamoto Relief. And we travel all over the world trying to ensure that kids have a safe structure to go to school in. And so that's why when we decided to bring this event into the U.S., we were really trying to bring something back to the local community, focus on kids in a different way, though, because in our country, we're very fortunate to, to have safe buildings. We have codes and things like that, and other countries aren't as fortunate. So, But our founders are very passionate about making sure that kids are safe and healthy so that they can build great futures. So how well did this fit with the Sacramento community? I think the greatest thing that I learned, and this was my first time running this event, was just how compassionate our community is, especially here in Sacramento. I mean, I live here, so I get to do a little shout out for us. We have such an amazing community here of givers, and the artists really stepped up, and a lot of people that we work with in our industry stepped up and I just think that you know once you start doing something that's really good and people see it they want to be a part of it and so I encourage more people to go out there and do something good whatever that means to you but it just felt really good doing that and made me realize how lucky we are to live here and be a part of this community. So what was the night of the actual event like? One of the great things about the event was it wasn't just one big spectacular night. It was a series of events leading up to it. Um, We had probably 20 to 25 doodle parties where people would sit down together and just draw and have a great time. And then we had about 20 doodle boxes in various locations in downtown Sacramento where we could get people, artists, non-artists, everybody just to participate and drop their doodles off and we would collect them. And we ended up with over 1,500 doodles, which were displayed at the event. So you really went over the night of a thousand drawings. (laughs) We did, not intentionally, but it was so popular. And matter of fact, at the, see, I'm trying to remember. Right before the event, people were actually, no, the day of the event, people were actually showing up with doodles in their hand and saying, can I submit my doodle? <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay, I guess so. Yeah, let's put it up. <laughs> yeah, I, I actually, I didn't host any doodle party or, or go to those events myself, but anytime I had a friend come over, I just offered them to paint with me and then I just kind of 
push the responsibility of dropping them off to you guys uh, onto the friend. So, so I had some submissions there. Did you expect to have this large of a turnout for for the art donations and for the the actual event night itself? I really had no idea what to expect because it's such a unique event and it's the first time in Sacramento. So I was a little nervous about you know what would happen, but. I felt like toward the end as the event was drawing near and I could see that it was just really picking up and people were getting excited. So I was really, really excited and proud that we had so many people and so many doodles and, and just so many particip- you know, people participating that it was, it was a little overwhelming. I was like, oh wow, you know, this is real, this is happening. So um, yeah, it was great. So, a kind of an odd question, but for next event, is there any particular style of art that you're hoping to get a little bit more of? Um, that's a great question. I don't know. Well, one thing that people should know is it doesn't have to be just drawing. It could be anything. We had people um, glue items onto boards or paper and submit those. We had. Um, watercolors and acrylic color uh, paintings and we had ink and pencil and all sorts of stuff so um, it really can be as creative as you want it to be or as simple as you want it to be. There were a lot of doodles that were really cute because they focused on our particular cause for the Boys and Girls Club of Greater Sacramento but overall I think they were very diverse and unique and I think that's what makes it such a cool event because you're seeing all this art done by people and it all is together in one night and it's all very different. So I don't have any expectations. The only thing I would like to see is, you know, more people get involved and attend and and just be a part of it because it's really unique, it's really fun. And um, I think that everybody will enjoy it. And just to wrap things up, where can everyone find information on Night of a Thousand Drawings? Well, for us, I'll mention our website again. It's nightofathousanddrawings.com. And then also we're on social media, on Instagram. You can follow us at Night of a Thousand Drawings. And we're also on Facebook. It's Night of a Thousand Drawings Sacramento on Facebook. So those are different ways that you can find out what we're doing with this event and how we intend to keep it going in the U.S., um, but overall, if you want to see how it how it's affecting other communities internationally, you can just you know Google it, and people in different parts of the world are doing this on their own as well. And I just think it's an awesome way to kind of unite communities for a greater good and bring something back to a local cause and really help people and have a great time doing it. I'm right now listening to Radio Flom and enjoying it immensely. And now... So runs tonight's tale of the unusual, the terrifying, the unknown. Starring Peter Lorre. All characters and events portrayed in these programs are fictional, and any similarity to actual events or persons, living or dead, is purely coincidental.
neither expect nor solicit belief for this wild story. I, I would be mad to expect it yet. said many times is of real benefit to him who possesses one. This particular sense has come to be so generally admired that it has attained the stature of a first-class virtue. <laughs> You're mad being love with her. That's why you came here tonight, isn't it? No. What <laughs> you're laughing. You, in love with a girl like Julie. <laughs> Why should my love make you laugh? Oh, so you admit it, huh? All right, I do. Why is it so funny? <laughs> do you think she'd have you? You, a, a clown, ugly, clumsy. <laughs> you, in love with Julie. <laughs> then why not? <laughs> Look at yourself. Ciao. <laughs> Let go of me. No. You're choking. Let go. I joke. I joke. No, believe me, there, there was nothing, absolutely nothing in my childhood which, which forecast the terrible events that were to come. Laugh. Oh, laugh now. Laugh. Your pulse is rapid and your eyes yes, are slightly yeah. dilated. Otherwise, you're in splendid condition. But, Doctor, then then why is it when evening comes on, a, a feeling of oppression seizes me, just, just as if night concealed something horrible? Why is that? Probably just a slight attack of indigestion. Yes, yes, indigestion. It's enough to make you shudder when you see what a boy or a girl can put in his or her stomach. Things you know would lay you low. Yet they bounce out of bed in the morning just a rare to go. That's youth for you. For medical knowledge proves that nature should produce about two pints of the vital digestive juice your liver makes each day. Otherwise, your food may not digest properly. So take genuine Carter's Little Liver Pills as directed tonight. Tomorrow, see if you don't wake up feeling glad to be alive. <laughs> to the inn as usual and I came home very late and I fell fast asleep with my clothes on. Then I was awakened suddenly. Hello, Charles. Julie. Why did you rush away from the theater tonight? I was anxious to talk to you. Talk to me about, about what? Uh, I need your advice, Charles. What's wrong? Well, it's Robert. What happened? Well, nothing happened. It, it's just that I'm not sure I love him. I'm not sure? Yes, when I'm with him, everything seems all right. He's mm. handsome and charming, but... He left someone else? Yes. Oh, who is it? You. What a joke. <laughs> what a joke. Charles, what's wrong? Oh, what There's a tears joke. Tears down your face. Charles, you're hysterical. Now stop it. Stop it. Stop it. Stop it. I know he has. 
This being I cannot call by name, he... he will not let me. That's common knowledge, Doctor. It's an axiom that... that human beings can be dominated by human beings, but... what if a human being is... is dominated by something? By, by something else, I mean. Something not human. What then, Doctor? Tonight I... committed a murder. Murder? What are you talking about? I killed Robert. Killed Robert? Out of your mind. You don't know what you're saying. Is it true? I went to his apartment and we quarreled and I killed him. Oh, no. You told me a moment ago that you loved me. Do you still love me? The perfume's in the air. Yes. There's a bottle of perfume overturned on the vanity table. Wild Heather. Get me my bag in the hall, Miss Driscoll. Hurry. I can see you very clearly now. Oh, mere household events and their consequences. These events have terrified, have tortured, have destroyed me. This may not be as hopeless as you think. Why? Was Robert alone in the apartment when you called? Yes. Were you seen entering or leaving? No. Are you sure? Yes, his apartment is on the second floor. I... They will find out. That's right. They won't suspect you since they can't know your motive. No one saw you enter or leave, and you have an excellent alibi. Oh, mere household events and their consequences. These events have terrified, have tortured, have destroyed me. Yes, Julia. Oh, I see what you mean. I'm not a criminal, but I must play the role of a criminal now. A subtle, clever criminal who is cunning enough to escape punishment. Can I do it, Julie? Charles, listen to me. We must find out how much the police know. Did Robert expect anyone tonight? Yes, George Galvin phoned when I was there. He... Perhaps I'm more calm, more, more logical, but certainly far less excitable than I will be able to explain to my... I cannot, uh... Promise me you will not leave this apartment, Charles. All right. Uh, yes, darling. I've been trying... I tried very hard. Good evening, Charles. George Gill. I know it's rather late for an unexpected visit. Yes. Have you a cigarette? Huh? Yes, here. Thanks. Well, what's the matter, Charles? Your hand's trembling. <laughs> it's nothing. You don't seem to be your usual self this evening. No quips, no jokes. What's wrong? I don't always feel like joking. Yes, Charles. It's strange about human nature, isn't it? After all these years... I'm Fred Rankin. But you... Yes. Mr. Fielding. Remember him? He was your neighbor once. Now, look, Charles. You killed Robert shortly before midnight tonight. Now, Charles, either we discuss terms now or I go to the police. What do you want? Money. All you have on hand. All you can dig up. All right. Come with me. I I have some money in the bedroom. All right. Well? Where's the money? Charles, stand back or I'll fire. Stand back. No! I'll squeeze your fingers. Charles, let go. This is all a joke. We are so weak, so... So defenseless and... What was that? 
I heard the rustle of paper. Yet there's no wind. Absolutely no wind. Just a second. Just a second. Charles. Darling. Darling, there's nothing more to worry about. Everything's all right now. We can be married and go on living and never fear anything. What makes you say that? Darling, you didn't commit a crime at all. What do you mean? Robert's alive. He's over. That is the end for him. He's dead. Yes, but... Hello, Charles. Well, I thought you were... Well, I'm not. But how did you... You see, I fainted. George Galvin came in and brought me to. George Galvin. Did you tell George Galvin what happened? Yes, I did. Look here, Charles. As I told Julie, I'm willing to forget the whole thing if you are. Forget? Forget? Yeah. It might have ended tragically, you know, but thinking it over, I realize I'm as much to blame as you are. Do I look any different? Charles, what's the matter with you? It's, it's nothing. <laughs> it's nothing. <laughs> it's nothing. doesn't need a little Malcolm Bliss in their lives.
Chesterton wrote, Fairy tales do not tell children that dragons exist. Children already know that dragons exist. Fairy tales tell the children that dragons can be killed. This quote to me says a lot about how fairy tales and stories and cartoons can help children understand and deal with the things that scare them in life. Cartoons are the modern equivalent of a parent sitting a child down and telling them a story. Not that parents don't still do that. It's just an additional method through which children learn and understand themselves. A lot of people think that children's shows or movies shouldn't be scary because they are worried about the effect that that will have on children and how their children will come away from it having nightmares and things like that. In reality, children's stories have always been scary. They've always dealt with themes that can be deemed terrifying. When you listen to stories about, like, the Big Bad Wolf and Hansel and Gretel, they're scary. Like, when you think of telling your child a story where two kids go into the woods and they meet up with a witch who tries to cook them, that's not a light story to tell to children before bed. It's the same thing with like modern cartoons that people nowadays will go back and watch their childhood cartoons and be like, why did my parents let me watch this? This is scary as heck. Like I used to watch Courage the Cowardly Dog when I was, when I was a child and that was scary as hell. Like it scared me. But a lot of those shows help children understand what it's like to be scared, how to deal with being scared, and that The things that scare you, they have weaknesses. There are ways to defeat the things that scare you. I think that the arc of a cartoon with the beginning, the rise, the plot, the action, and then the climax really help children to understand that. That there are heroes and they themselves can be the hero that defeats what they're afraid of. One of my favorite movies is um, Coraline. A lot of adults went and saw that movie with their children and said that it was absolutely terrifying and they have no idea why their child enjoyed the movie so much. But when their children were were spoken to about the movie, they treated it like they knew what Coraline was going through. They had had monsters in their own closets They had had their own nightmares and that watching Coraline defeat her monster, they almost lived the victory through her. A lot of those children feel like their parents don't listen to them. They're not listening when they say that they're afraid. They just gently brush it off and 
say there is no monster in your closet. Don't, don't be afraid. But that's not what the child is asking for. They're asking for help in defeating their fear, not help getting rid of their fear or ignoring what they're afraid of. Like G.K. Chesterton said, they know that the dragons are there. They know that their fears are real. They need their parents. They need cartoons. They need the stories that they're being told to tell them that those dragons and their fears can be squashed. Children are the last oppressed, buried under all the mature hypocritical nonsense and surpassed knowledge. The general adult dumbfounded stupidity they have them swallow. Children can be any generation. A child stands there, just holding hands with another child, listening to the music, and you think you have anything to say to a child? You may teach, and if they don't show up you suck it up. Children ask questions. Adults bullshit about everything. Cars and trains here, yeah, I get a little worried, of course, because they just want to run free everywhere. But your concerns are usually just frustrations. Maybe care, like a child. Maybe doubt and be resilient and childish for what frustrates you. But having made the culture children inclusive, we are left with nothing but children. Adult children and childish adults. Somehow, we need to teach and get them to actually become generous. What the wise and brilliant of any degree have in common is generosity and open-minded wit. Like Jesus. Ha. I wish I could turn fish to wine. Fish without plastic and toxins in them. No, not even God can do that. Mankind fucked up beyond all recognition. Every day is Halloween. Trying to do something profound that the old generation neglected and could have still made a difference and some money back then. Only. Not now anymore. Radio Flom is brought to you in part by Carter's Little Liver Pills. Because how many podcasts do you know that uses the words little and liver in the same sentence? Uh, uh, what's a liver? Fixafile.com. Great printing, low prices, shipped to your door and all that. Diego Valley at twitter.com slash Diego Valley underscore LTHM and soundcloud.com slash Diego Valley Music. Seventh Swami at seventhswami.com. And and our sponsor that's just like a father figure. Not an actual father figure, but just like one. Squadcast.fm. Remote interviews for professional podcasters. Excellent user interface, intuitive controls, plus a genuine red record button. Squadcast.fm. Talk to interesting people around the world. And record them. For your own podcast. 
or for hours if you want to. We're all volunteers here. And right now there's a bunch of children running around. And we're tired. Very, very tired. Hey, hey, come here. Hi. Do, do you want to say, I hope you feel better, Cliff? I hope you feel better, Cliff. Yep, perfect. All right. Um, and then here, just read this. Right now? Yes, right now, please. Please. From Sacramento, the heart of California and around the world, this has been been Radio Flum, featuring a cast of dozens appearing on tonight's episode in order were Rebecca Red, Chad Andre, Mikey, Mars, Lisette Celio, Kelsey Kuknik, Hunter Farnebach, Eni, Milk Surface, D, Steve Mehalo, Ruby Roth, Borti, Drunkuggy, Brian Mendez, Avocado Finnegers, Easy de Batsider Session Sacramento, Jeanne Mehalo, Class Click, Steve Isman, Marina Hill, Peter Loreas Joker, Malcolm Bliss, Christitia Languorem. Also featured were Jason Spear, Audrey Daggett, Avon Lejanik. Radio Farm is produced by Steve Me Me Mahalo. 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 And Milk Surface as himself. Uh, theme music by Chelsea Davis. Chelsea. Sound design and engineering by Steve Mahalo. 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 Radio Farm is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 international license. However, recordings of contributors or guests of Radio Flom are still protected under international copyright law. All episodes can be downloaded for your convenience. Mm Mm-hmm. Radio Flom contains works featured for review, opinion, slash critique, and slash or artistic transformation, and will contain adult content and nudity. nudity. Oh, yeah, just... Okay, keep going. There's There's more on the back. Uh... Farm is a faux modern art movement, art history resource that promotes learning and education through new alternative media. Farm is your online connection to art history, music, and beyond through Instagram, Twitter, and other social media. We are all... No. 
flam, flam, flamists. 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 Mm-hmm. You can be too. Donations graciously accepted at. Patreon.com slash Flamis. Patreon.com slash Flamis. Or just buy us a coffee at slash coffee. We are adding It's It's an address symbol, so it, it just reads as at. That's funny. That's funny looking. <laughs> That's how you use Twitter. You'll, you'll get a Twitter later in life. I will? Yeah, so just go ahead and read the line. We are at Flamis on most social media. Flam is sometimes explained, but usually not. And then here, just read your name instead of the one in caps. This is D saying thank you for listening. And if you don't like this podcast, do something about it. Perfect. Thank you. Bye, Milk. Bye. Yeah, what's up, dude? Are we doing my interview or what? Um, we finished it. You don't remember? Oh, no, I remember. You. <laughs> Sponsored by Modelo. Giving lessons on empathy, autonomy, and how to understand and regulate emotions grows better, more understanding humans. With children that are taught autonomy and safety early on, they will know how to better take care of themselves and others and can speak up for themselves. And even in justice, if they see it, which could be something as simple as a child seeing another child take a toy from their friend and speaking up about it. Children are important, and how we treat them and model for them is important. These children go on to shape the generation after us. There is a bigger picture than just us right now, a life beyond us that is more challenged than ever before, politically, socially, environmentally, among other things. And by giving children respect, we honor them as another person and vilify that they matter. And hopefully that sticks with them and that they also practice that in the future.